Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Moses Storm. And I don't know if you know this about wheels, but they're probably the rolliest of all foundations. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say, you guys might know, Chris Castiglione created the Risk website. And one of the main reasons he was an irreplaceable part of the team was that he taught himself how to code. And now he's developed this brilliant and incredibly user-friendly class called One Month HTML that'll teach you how to code in less than a month. Coding is the most desired job skill out there now. Everyone wants a website, and being able to do it yourself is real empowerment. One Month HTML is the easiest way to learn code. You build an actual website, you'll be welcomed into a community of over 12,000 people. There's hours of easy-to-follow videos, hands-on exercises and training, and the best part, if you get stuck, there's always someone there to help you out. So enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk. Enrollment's typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off, and you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month HTML, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll be able to code HTML and CSS on your own. Onemonth.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Teebs behind me now. We're calling today's episode Inappropriate. Ironically, because we always say nothing's inappropriate on the show, till something most definitely is, and three folks are going to take us to those inappropriate places today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful Sarah Barron. Sarah is no longer with us in New York City. She now lives over in England. But you might recall from some of the first seasons of Risk, 2009, 2010, she did some amazing stuff with us. So it's a thrill to have her back on. She was visiting New York, and we got her back on. She also has a new book out called The Harm in Asking. It's getting just as many raves as her first. But before that, we're going to start with a story that was recorded at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. We do once a month at the Nerd Melt Theater. Moses Storm is such a talented guy. He also made such a big impression on us the first time he did the show. Here he is now with a story we call Home on the Range.
I came from the back. I'm just one of you guys. Um, you guys feeling good still? It's good to see you. Uh, my full name is actually Moses Jacob Storm. And if you couldn't tell from that, that I'll just tell you that my parents are actually very religious. Uh, for the first half of my life, my parents were actually traveling missionaries for a religion that they just made up. Uh, my dad is, is Christian and my mom is Catholic, and together they made, I guess, like a, like a greatest hits of those two religions, like a mixtape, if you will. Uh, quick cliff notes about the religion. It's called The Way. Uh, it uses both Old and New Testaments of the Bible. It's against any, like, organized religion, so it involves, like, a lot of, like, street demonstrations and, like, public preaching. As far as the rules, anything that's, like, fun, you're, like, not allowed to do, and it has zero followers. Uh, that's including them. Like, even to this day, like, they don't follow it. Like, they look back... <laughs> They're like, they look back on the religion like, like someone, they put like the same regret and nostalgia as someone who had like blonde dreadlocks. <laughs> what was I, my 20s were crazy. What was I thinking? Uh, whenever I tell someone that we were like traveling missionaries, people always presume that like, we must have been everywhere. We must have been all over the world. And it wasn't until recently I was looking back and realizing it's like, no. I mean, we, we moved a lot, but we never really went anywhere. I think a lot of this has to do with my dad. He's got an inability to ever like jump outside of his comfort zone, which is an odd job if you're gonna jam a religion down someone's throat. But he, like, he won't allow himself to, to be uncomfortable ever. Like if he's at a party and he feels like a little awkward, he'll just like leave. He'll never like power through that like awkward stage. And uh, I actually recognize a lot of that in myself too. And I think that's the biggest thing that's like standing in the way of us having a relationship today is just that inability to, to push past that stuff. My mom is uh, just the opposite. She's like a free spirit, almost in like the, the negative sense of the word. Like, hey, put a shirt on, lady. This is a target. <laughs> anyway. So she was, like, she was like really the driving force behind any of the traveling that we did do. She's always had a wanderlust, and uh, she was able to convince my dad in 1991 to sell our house in Finley, Ohio, and buy this old Greyhound bus that they were going to convert into an RV and camper and, and travel the US and then spread the word of this religion. And uh, when they buy the bus, they're very poor. My parents are very poor because they have five kids and they have five kids because they're very religious. And they're very religious because they're very poor and they're very poor because they have five kids and they have five kids because they're very religious and they're very religious because they're very poor. <laughs> So not only did they have to sell the house, but they ended up having to trade most of their, their personal belongings to get this bus. My mom trades like jewelry that was family heirlooms, and my dad's a construction worker, and he trades like all his power tools to get this bus. And I asked my mom about it today, and she's like, yeah, it was the 90s, people traded. And like, <laughs> I don't think that's a thing. So then that summer, they, they could convert this bus into an RV, but like not well. Like, they didn't, they didn't do a good job at all. My dad's, like, a good construction worker, but, like, a lot of the projects in the bus didn't really, like, turn out because he didn't have the right tools for the job because he just traded them away to do the job. <laughs> so we finally set out to our first campground, and it was pretty young. I didn't really know where we were, but wherever we were, it felt very far away. And much like Ohio, it was very cold, and uh, this bus was not built for the cold, and it was not built for the heat, and it was not built for room temperature. <laughs> There's like cabinets in this bus would just like swing open at inopportune times. You'd like close a drawer, and like entire shelving units would collapse. Like the most simple tasks were probably the most dangerous. Like, like most of the scars that I have on my body today are just from like trying to make tacos on that bus. <laughs> So one day, we're, we, we go to a grocery store in our new neighborhood, and we run into our old neighbor. And I remember thinking how crazy it was that our, that our old neighbor was, was all the way out here. Like, what are the odds? He's all the way out here, too. Uh, it turns out the odds are very good, because we are staying only 16 miles away from our old house. You see, my dad was so comfortable in Ohio that his way of like meeting my mom's wanderlust in the middle was just staying down the street. <laughs> We basically just like traded our shitty house for like a shittier house. And she would always be so frustrated. She'd always like pitch all these ideas like, oh, we could go to Texas. We were in a bus. We could go anywhere. We could go to California. She always wanted to go to California. And you'd always find like a reason like why we couldn't go. Whether it was like inconvenient, oh, we don't have the money. And I'm not going to California. It's the gay pagan capital of the world. And uh, one day she pitches the idea of us going to Florida. 
And to all of our surprise, he agrees to go into Florida. And he loves Florida. Like, he's still there today. And I don't know why he loves it. I don't know if you guys know this, but Florida is actually located in Florida. <laughs> so we go down to Florida, and, and we were like, okay, this is it. We're doing it. Like, finally traveling. We're all so excited. And as soon as he gets to Florida, he becomes very comfortable very quick. He just basically trades one comfort zone for the other. You can only stay in an RV park for two weeks at a time. That's the rule. They figure no one would want to stay longer than that. So what my dad does is he finds two RV parks that are within five miles of each other. And for the next two years, we just oscillate between the two parks. We say two weeks in Seagrove, two weeks in Destin, two weeks back in Seagrove, two weeks in Destin. Other like traveling families would come up to us in, in the park and they'd always like tell us the stories of all the like amazing travels, all the places we've been. Oh, we were in Baton Rouge, it was amazing, we were in St. Augustine. It was always so embarrassing because it'd be like, oh, where have you guys been? And we'd be like, oh, we were then like here and we've been uh, here. Have you guys been down the street? It is like a whole new world. They have like two gas stations over there. So. One of the biggest problems with Florida, besides everything, is, is that it's hit with hurricanes. So Hurricane Earl is about to hit, and most of the town evacuates. Now, you always hear about those like, crazy people who like, stay behind and like, ride out the storm. And you like, see them on like, the news later getting rescued, and they're, that's what she said, shirt on the roof. <laughs> I didn't know the water was going to get that high. <laughs> The, the, honestly, the reason they do this, though, is because they have, like, no, they have no other resources. Like, financially, they, they have no place to go, or they have no transportation. They, they, that's just, that's why they stay. Now, my dad chooses to ride out the storm. No, he didn't want to leave Florida. We're going to stay. Now, unlike the people that, that have no place to go and no transportation, we live in a bus. <laughs> it's on wheels. One of the only benefits of living in a bus is that you can literally live anywhere. And so if you can live anywhere, that means we have a place to go. And not only do we have a place to go, but the place that we have to go to is also our ride there. <laughs> or we're going to ride it out. God's got us. He'll watch over us. So we ride out, we ride out the, the storm, and the only other person that stayed was like the owner of the campground, and he stayed in the clubhouse, which is made of brick. We stayed in the bus, which is made of duct tape and dreams. <laughs> it's one of the most terrifying nights of my life is that the wind is whipping and like trees are coming down all around us. And I don't know if you know this about wheels, but they're probably the rolliest of all foundations. <laughs> So the wind blows the entire bus back into the Seagrove woods. I don't think God's looking right now. And, and the bus sustained some damage. And after the storm clears, we're forced to move into a house for the first time in a long time. And now my dad's become so comfortable in this bus style of living that when we all move into the house, he stays in the bus in the front yard. Where's dad at? Oh, he's out front in his bus. You know, the one with the holes in it. And he'd come inside with like a cut on his forehead. He's like, I made tacos. Like, we can tell. <laughs> now, a lot of this actually had to do with like my parents not getting along at the time, the separate living situation. A lot of the religion stuff had dried up at this point. They stopped doing like their street demonstrations. And my parents are just like, honestly, two very different people. I don't like to think of it as they got married so much as they just got pregnant. Uh, and they're, they're two of the most sexually repressed people I've ever met. Like, I once saw my dad, after seeing a sunset with my mom, give her a high five. <laughs> Oof, the sparks between those two. <laughs> so, so they divorce. And now my mom takes a divorce as really like her opportunity to do all the stuff that she always wanted to do. And one of those things was go to California, the gay pagan capital of the world. Now, she knew my dad would never let this happen, but she got custody of us in the divorce, us five kids, and my dad got custody of the bus. So, fair trade. And one night when he's out, she decides to whisk us away in the middle of the night to California. She literally just pulls up a moving truck, and we, we just throw stuff into the back of this moving truck. Like, stuff's not even in boxes. That's how quick we left. It's just like loose clothes. We threw our bunnies in there. It's a fucking mess. And we leave. And my mom calls my dad from a, a truck stop in Texas and lets him know what she's done. Free spirit. And, um, and I get on the phone with my dad and, and I let him know I'm okay. I haven't been kidnapped or anything. And, uh, and then I don't hear from my dad for 10 years. 
uh, which is an odd situation because you always hear about the cliche of like, oh, dad walked out, or like dad went to the cigarette store, never came back. In this scenario, we all went to the cigarette store <laughs> and never came back. Or if Florida is the cigarette store, then we all went to the cigarette store, but then dad just stayed at the cigarette store. <laughs> and he's there now. That's a good name for Florida, just the cigarette store. Um, so, so 10 years go by and I'm sitting in a diner with my dad and I ask him point blank, like, why he never tried to, to come after us for those 10 years, why he never tried to reach out. And then he shows me all these letters from me saying that I explicitly don't want to see him and that if he ever tries to contact me or anyone in my family, uh, I'll say that, uh, that he abused us, he assaulted my mom, and I'll have him arrested. And I look at these letters, and uh, not only has my signature been forged, but so has my penmanship. See, my mom's been writing these letters to him from me for, for years. And, um, and I was really upset in this moment, uh, not only for like the time lost, but I was actually most upset in that moment because of like how much she had hammed up the kid handwriting in his letters. Because <laughs> like easy words are misspelled and there's like a backwards R. I'm like, cool it lady, you're pretending to be 11, not mentally handicapped. <laughs> And I called my dad and I'm like, you had to know this is me. I don't talk like this. Like, what 11-year-old misspells boat but then civil lawsuit is spelled correct? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, no, I figured that, that um, it was your mom either making you say that or, or she was writing him, but I figured that if she felt that way about me and I tried to come around, uh, it would have been awkward. It would have been uncomfortable for you guys. It would have been weird. And you know, he's right. It, it would have been. But um, who knows for how long? I definitely don't think for, for 10 years. And it's unfortunate because it's the attitude that, that carries over to today. It's what's turned 10 years into 15 years. It's just that unwillingness to push past that uncomfortable and awkward stage. And, and what I've learned in my own personal life is like anytime I've really wanted something, whether it's a relationship with a girl or any arbitrary personal goal, it's always involved like some kind of like weirdness or uncomfortableness or some kind of discomfort and, and inconvenience on my part to get what I want. And it sucks, but it's just like what you have to go through. And right now I just feel like my dad would rather be comfortable than, than have a relationship. And you know, comfort is numbness. The same thing that protects you from inconvenience and discomfort is the same thing that removes you from life. And it's what's removed him from mine. And at this point, I, we won't ever be comfortable until we be uncomfortable. Thank you, guys. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round. of my family's history. It's a real sort of slap in the face to the American dream because if what you're supposed to do here is arrive on the shores and do better than the generation that came before you, in my family, we like to make sure we do worse. It's very important. My great-grandfather was a surgeon. My grandfather, his son, was just a regular doctor. My mother, his daughter, is a psychotherapist. And me, her daughter, I'm just not anything, really. I've done a bunch of different stuff professionally, and I say that in quotes, because all, all that I really care about is making sure I don't earn too much money. I consider myself a sort of professional under-earner because if I earn too much money, well then, I insult my family's legacy. So it was in keeping with this overall philosophy that I decided to try my hands at teaching writing. I'd done a little waitressing, a little stuff behind a cash register at a Banana Republic, a little bit of secretarial work, anything really, as long as I don't make too much money. And if ever you yourself have taught anything, you understand that there is no risk 
of over-earning. The first time I saw a mention of the job was in the back of this free weekly paper and it said that it was seeking writers seeking extra cash. And I was like, well, I'm a writer. I've written stuff. Nothing published, but you know, I keep a diary. And I thought, well, if I pair that with a nice blazer, a nice pair of glasses, maybe that will do the job of having been professionally published. So I barreled in and I got the job, which was crazy. And this is the very strange part of the story is how I actually got the job. I don't mean this to sound arrogant. I do believe in real life that the dean of students had a little crush on me, which if you Google image me will seem strange to you, but just go with it. He said that he thought my, and this is a quote, my aggressive speaking voice would help keep my students awake, if not fully engaged. I was really excited about teaching. I thought, like, I watched all these movies about teaching, like Dead Poets Society and Stand and Deliver, and the one with Michelle Pfeiffer, whose name escapes me now, but there's some rapping song about it. But I watched those movies, and I was like, okay, all I have to do is I walk through the students' desks in a certain kind of way, and I lean against my own desk in a right way, and then I'll just look like I'm in control. And if you look like you're in control, then in fact, you are in control. The only thing that I had any anxiety about was whether or not I could lecture. I didn't feel I had that much to say on any given topic, dialogue, structure, character, these kinds of things. I didn't feel I had that much to say, but my thinking was maybe if I offer up personal correlating anecdotes, maybe then that can just help me fill the time. So for the lecture, for example, on character, I'd be like, okay, you guys, you should make sure there are characters in your story. And then one of my students would be like, Sarah, how do I do it? Like, how would you put a character in your story? And I'd say, well, for example, I could write a story about my dad because my dad is a character. How is he a character? Well, consider what he does. My dad cries. He cries like a woman. He cries at sitcoms like The Wonder Years and news stories. In fact, when we went to see the movie Father of the Bride in 1992, my father's crying got so loud that the woman sitting behind us was like, ma'am, to my mother, ma'am, you have to take him out. So that's a story that illustrates my father's character and therefore the kind of thing I might put in my own piece. Do we have any questions? No. Great. Let's move along. That's kind of how it could go. And on the rare occasions when maybe I didn't have a correlating anecdote, I could let the students answer themselves. Do you know what I mean? So someone would say, but Sarah, really, how do you create a round character? And I would say, wow, great question, Clara. Um, Chris, do you have an answer? And then Chris could answer and I would just look like I was helping them help themselves rather than entirely devoid of answers myself. I got to this point where I really felt legitimately excited about the whole thing. But then the problem was, and this is classic behavior on my part, I undermined myself when at the first class I was like, oh, I know what I'll do. To look authoritative, I'm going to call myself professor. I was like, hey, everybody, I'm Sarah. I'll be your writing professor. It came to me in what I thought was like a moment of genius. But in fact, there was this one student whose name was Harry. And I don't mean to suggest that you can know a person as gay by looking at them. I don't think that you do. But I'm just saying there's a thing that he was doing with like color clashing that was very strong. And I was like, that's something that a gay man can do. Anyway, so Harry was like, excuse me, did you just call yourself professor? And I was like, I did. And he goes, right is this an accredited college or university? And I was like, no. And he's like, right. It's not. So you shouldn't call yourself professor. This is like adult continuing ed. So you should call yourself instructor. And I was kind of like, I'm going to cry slash fair point. And that was as chummy as it got those first few weeks. Like it was very awkward. People weren't interested in my personal anecdotes. So then because of my failure to lecture, my surprising failure to lecture. We had to find some way to fill the time, and I felt the least I could do for my students who were getting cheated out of a class that they'd pay for was that I could at least leave it up to them in terms of what it was that we would do to fill the time. So I was like, all right, guys, we've got some options. Number one, we could play a game of telephone, kick it old school. We could like do a thing where we discussed world affairs because as writers, like it's really important that we know what's happening in the world around us. And someone was like, yeah, let's do that. And I was like, no, let's not do that. We could do it if it's like celebrity news because that's the only kind of news that I can really work with. But it could be like celebrity news that we follow and then we like write satirical pieces about celebrities. Does that appeal to anybody? Or wait, you guys, what if we do like 
just an eating break. We'll give ourselves like a 20-minute eating break. Anyway, that is what we decided on, although here's like a word of wisdom to any people who are maybe going to teach and run out of things to talk about and then schedule their own 20-minute eating break, is that if nobody's talking, all you do is sit there and it's this heightened awareness of the sound of other people's chewing. This is how it came to pass in a very necessity as mother of invention type way that we came up with a game that we called this might be controversial. It came about in the workshop portion of the class. Basically, a lot of what you do in a writing class is people write and submit their own pieces, and then all the other students offer up their positive and improvement comments. So you'd hear things like, on page three, paragraph four, I really liked how you did the funny thing with the Barbara Streisand character. But on page seven, paragraph 10, I thought it was lame when you talk about the fact that you think you're adorable. So it'd be this kind of thing, right? This backing and forthing of here's what I like and here's what I don't like. And I had this one student who was Swedish and lovely and spoke impeccable English. And his name was Sten. And Sten felt really uncomfortable saying anything negative. So he would say like, I really like how on page four, paragraph nine, it is wonderful when you do the scene where you're washing your feet and then crying. It's super duper funny. But it's my improvement. Oh, I don't know, instructor. I just think it's writing is so hard for people. So it is a good piece that Miriam has written. Now, mind you, Miriam was this recent retiree who I had. And it's her piece. What she'd submitted was the eulogy from her mother's funeral. She was like, one of, do you know there are those women you always see them around and they wear like only the color purple? And you're like, oh, right, you're a little broken. She was one of those people. And I think that Sven intuited that about her and so therefore tried to be kind. But the problem was he would be kind to everybody, no matter what. And so I had to work as his instructor, not his professor, very hard to get a harsher critique out of him. I'd say, listen, you have to find a way that works for you. And the way that Sven found that worked for him was by saying, this might be controversial. He offered it up as sort of like this disclaimer. So he'd say something like, this might be controversial, but on page six, paragraph 10, I thought the line where you had seven adjectives, this is very silly. Or this might be controversial, but on page five, paragraph nine, you do the part where you talk about your boyfriend. And I think, mm, hello, this part is very boring. It was kind of like for him, this might be controversial, freed him up and allowed him to say whatever he had to say, which was its own thing. But then what started happening is everybody had to say it. It got to this point where no one in the class would give a critique without setting it up with this might be controversial. So you'd hear like, this might be controversial, but on page three, paragraph 12, it's really bad for me how cheesy the dialogue is when your father tells you you had cancer. Or somebody else would say, this might be controversial, but on page three, paragraph 12, it was like really bad how cheesy the dialogue was when your father tells you he has cancer. Or someone would say, this might be controversial, but on page one, paragraph three, your interpretation of manic depression as creative genius, like for me, ugh, it's like it feels really self-delighted. So this is how it went, right? Always hearing this phrase. And then one day, maybe halfway through the class, Harry, who to remind you was the guy who was gay and paired colors very well, he came back from a bathroom break and was like, all right, listen, here's my idea. The next time someone says, this might be controversial. The deal is you have to follow it up with something really controversial. What do you think? And frankly, I was like, whatever. Like anything that we can do to stretch this class out, let's bring it in. Harry, you go first. He said, great. This might be controversial, but I actually do not want them to legalize gay marriage. I hate marriage. I hate the weddings. I hate the registries. I hate the amount of money, the travel. It's like suddenly all my vacation time is spent like going to other people's stupid weddings. And I feel like the privilege of being gay was that I had to deal with less of that shit than everybody else. And now that they're gonna legalize gay marriage, it's like, oh my God, fuck it, no. Just fewer rights, fewer rights if it means I can go to fewer weddings. <sighs> And he sighed when he was done. And I was like, excuse me, Harry, that sounded good. He was like, excuse me, but it felt good. And you could feel from the other students in the room, not judgment, okay? It wasn't that anybody had been offended. It was rather this sort of like desire creeping out, this sense that the other students wanted their own catharsis. 
So after that, right, this other week went by and it was like this unearthed sort of universal desire was starting to shift the meaning of our phrase. This might be controversial. It went from this way by which you softened your critique to a means by which you could say something really controversial. Someone went, this might be controversial, but when I meet an anorexic, I want to punch her in the face. And then I had this other student who was like, all right, listen to this. This might be controversial, but I saw this thing on the news the other day about this family. Okay. And I know it's horrible. They had 10 kids and one of the kids drowned in a river. Horrible. But the parents are there and they're going on and they're on and they're sobbing and they're yammering. And it's all about like how it's the city's fault and the city didn't have a fence up and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, you guys, you still have nine more kids. You fuck with the planet when you fuck like that and the planet fucked with you. And then someone was like, all right, listen, this might be controversial, but I went down on a black man recently and his pubic hair smelled African to me. Does this make sense? And no one said that it made sense. But the point is we tried to provide a safe environment for something like that to be articulated. So this is happening, right? It's like, this might be controversial. This might be controversial. And so I make this observation. I'm like, you guys, this might be controversial is spreading like wildfire. And then Sven said, no, instructor, not spreading like wildfire. This is so cliche. You have to think of a better way to say it. Perhaps it is it is spreading among us like flames upon the gasoline-soaked payas of a Jew. And then Miriam came in with, well, listen, this might be controversial, but Israeli people are rude. Oh, I hate to say it, but I have never in my life met a polite Israeli. And this is how it would go, right? And the only rule in place was that you could not say something if you didn't believe it, which, to be frank, was not a problem. I had this other student named Dave. Now, a few words on Dave. Dave was Caucasian. He had dreadlocks. He had very wealthy parents. And what I thought of as being sort of an allergy to any and all critiques of his writing. If you had any edits for him, his feeling was that those edits would affect the integrity. So this was kind of Dave and who he was. And one day we're in the midst of playing our game and he goes, all right, well, this might be controversial, but um, I don't think bestiality is that gross. Like, I'm just saying, man, like I kind of get it, you know, like how it's hot that you'd get off without having to return the favor. And at that point, all of us nodded in acceptance, not agreement, but acceptance. So there's this one day where Sven comes to class and he's looking atypically upset. And Miriam's like, oh, Sven, what's wrong? And Sven's like, well, I have something very controversial to say and I'm very ashamed by this one. And Dave said, well, dude, listen, don't be ashamed. Like last week, I pretty much confessed I want a blowjob from a dog. And Sven was like, you did. You did do your blowjob confession that day. And I was very thankful. So yes, okay, I will be very controversial too today oh this might be controversial but when I think about the politician that is John Edwards I do not blame him for his cheating because his wife is so homely and Miriam heard this and she was like what Sven not is was Elizabeth Edwards has died and then Dave was like Miriam chill Sven's just being controversial don't make him feel bad he knows it's bad just like look how sad he looks and he did you guys, he looked so sad. He was slumped in the corner. His bottom lip was protruding. And Miriam was like, Sven, I'm sorry. I I don't mean to be cruel. I mean, we all have our things, you know, for what it's worth. This might be controversial, but I only go to male doctors because I have a problem trusting women. Sven was like, you must hate yourself for this. Miriam was like, I do. It's really hard. We had other people in the class too. I had a Paul and there was a Brian and there was a Lisa and a Lauren. And as time went on, they also made their own difficult admissions. Those kinds of things that don't even feel cathartic so much as they feel depressing. This might be controversial, but I wish divorce on most of my friends. This might be controversial, but I kind of feel like you can't be truly raped if you find the guy attractive. This might be controversial, but I hated The Wire. This might be controversial, but I hate Breaking Bad. 
You guys, this might be controversial, but I think women who change their names after marriage are so stupid. I always judge them. It's like, not to their faces, of course, because to their faces, I say the thing you have to say, which is like, it's just about a woman's right to choose. But that's not how I feel in my heart. In my heart, I'm like, come on, woman, please grow a fucking backbone. This writing class in total ran for 10 weeks. And as we inch toward the end, I finally got to a place where I also could make difficult admissions. This might be controversial, but I'm attracted to Rick Santorum. This might be controversial, but I don't like Malcolm Gladwell. This might be controversial, but if you're living on public assistance, you shouldn't be allowed to have a pet. When finally we reached that last week, something very bizarre and unprecedented happened, which is that we wound up not playing. This might be controversial. It was almost as though we'd reached a sort of saturation point. Dan, one week, was like, this might be controversial, but I do feel like a gay man is more likely than a straight man to be a pedophile. And it was kind of like all bets were off. Harry responded, the thing is, Dan, that's not even controversial. It's wrong. It's empirically wrong because it's subjectively untrue. In that moment, it was like things were uncomfortable in a way that they hadn't been, really, since I had the nerve to barrel in and call myself professor. It got very tense instead of there being any sense of camaraderie. And we lost the will to speak on controversial subjects. But what was even weirder than that was that we didn't need to speak on controversial subjects because for the first and only time since the class had started, my students cared about my lecture because the topic was the business of writing. And when I announced it to them, when I was like, all right, everyone, it's time for us to talk about how to make money, there was unprecedented interest. Suddenly, it's like they're scribbling in their notebooks. Everybody has questions. They're like, am I going to get published? How often? How much money am I going to make? And it was the only moment as a teacher that felt to me like the teachers in the movies that I'd seen. Do you know what I mean? There was like some sense of like, everybody, calm down. Hold on. I'm going to get there when I get there. And if it was sad, if it was somehow sad for this might be controversial to have come to an end, I personally felt it was made up for in, in the fact that I now felt like I could be a real teacher who had real answers. I felt like my students were excited and engaged. I felt like I had the ability to teach. I said, you guys, listen up. You might get published, but only online, and you will never make any money. And they're like, any money? And I was like, well, no, I mean, you, you could make some money, but not the kind that's going to do you any good. And then I had this one student raise her hand and she was like, wait a second. Is this why you pack a homemade tuna sandwich every week? And I was like, exactly. She was like, is this why your clothes are always stained because it's too expensive to dry clean them? I was like, Exactly. They'd done so much growing in the weeks that I'd had them. Maybe, you know, maybe their writing hadn't gotten much better, but certainly they were learning to read people and judge character. And I said, wow, you guys, you have learned so much. And the second the words were out of my mouth, I catch them eyeing one another. And Harry shook his head and raised his hand and said, I'm not so sure about that. I think that opinion might be controversial.
This is Risk. This is Kishibashi behind me now, and we just heard from Sarah Barron. I want to take just a moment here to talk about how computers are designed to make running a business easier, including your mailing and shipping. That's why we just use Stamps.com to get 24-hour access to the post office right from your computer. There's no waiting in line, no hassles. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easy. You just use the computer and printer you already have to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. You print the postage directly onto the envelopes or labels, uh, even plain paper, and you hand it to your mail carrier. So there's no guesswork. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage for any class of mail. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com and we love it. And right now, you use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer. That includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Our final story today comes from a good friend of mine going back a long ways now, the wonderful Carolyn Castiglia. A great lady, wonderful comic. You can find her on Twitter at Miss CKC. And here she is now at the Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call Mommy Issues. you guys the story of the great Easter basket incident of 2010 Uh, but before I do that I have to tell you a little bit about my mother my mother is a character that some people have come to know through my stand-up or through videos that I've made about her but I never really talk about what my real childhood was like with my mother because it was very intense. I think that my mother is an undiagnosed borderline personality. I don't know that because she refuses to go to therapy, which is a hallmark of the condition. (laughs) Uh, Needless to say, she has some narcissistic issues, okay? My whole life, my mother has treated me to my face as if I don't exist. And I know that's a paradox, but let me explain to you how that works. When I do something that she can be proud of, I am an extension of her, right? Oh my God, Kath, did you hear? Carolyn's gonna be on Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers, that's amazing, isn't it? Carolyn, that's my daughter. It's almost like me. It's almost like I'm gonna be on Joan Rivers. Can you believe? I'm gonna be on Joan Rivers. Can you believe? I am Joan Rivers. (laughs) And the rest of the time, I'm just a receptacle for all of her shame and blame. One time, she told me that because I accidentally ripped the soap dish off of the wall in the upstairs bathroom in her house that she was gonna have to cancel Christmas. (laughs) Because, Carolyn, you ripped the soap dish off the wall, now I gotta redo the whole goddamn bathroom. Okay? To you, that's one tile missing, you don't understand. I gotta repaint now, I gotta redo the floor, I gotta use gold grout, that's gonna cost a lot of money. Okay, you're gonna have to go downstairs and tell those grandkids of mine, there's no Santa Claus coming, okay? You're holding Santa Claus in your hand, in that soap dish. (laughs) My whole childhood was filled with a lot of hitting and yelling. My mother used to say stuff like, you ungrateful little shit. A lot of consonants in my mother's life, you know what I mean? You bastard, right? I hope you have one just like ya. And I'd always blubber back, I hope so too. Because I'm pretty great. And if you can't see that, then I'm just going to have to just keep on living here. 
kid. She'd say, you have no rights in this house. Like a witch. The cinema of the witch, right? I was so scared of Wizard of Oz from the time that I was born. I was like, that's my mom, you know. Uh, <laughs> you have no rights until you're 21, you're mine. And she'd say it just like that. She was so angry. She was angry all the time. She was angry over everything. She was angry over nothing. And anything could set her off. It was like I was a cat toy and she was a cat. And as long as I didn't move, maybe she wouldn't notice me and everything would be fine. But if I accidentally twitched and she saw me out of the corner of her eye, she'd bounce. And the way it is with cats, you know, we engage in this dance of like predator and prey that looks so graceful when you see it in slow motion on National Geographic, right? What'd you do with my hairbrush? I don't know. Get your own hairbrush, you bitch. I'm only 12. (laughs) When you're in the middle of that, it feels like falling until it stops. And you cry or you don't cry, which is worse. And then the dust settles and kind of hardens on your heart. And the thing about cats and their toys is that once they're done with them, they walk away from them completely disinterested. Like, psh, am I supposed to be impressed by that feather on a stick? Because you're going to have to try harder, bitch. And because you want the cat to love you, you upgrade to the little red laser pen, right? And you start waving it at the kitty. And you're like, kitty, come back, kitty. Do you love me? Are you my mother? (laughs) So it was Easter Sunday, 2010. And I was back at my mother's house, not visiting. I lived there again, this time with my four-year-old daughter because I had gotten a divorce a year before and I had no place else to go. And I was working a six-show weekend at the local comedy club in Syracuse called Wise Guys. You do six shows in four days. It's very tiring, but it made me really strong. And I knew that I was going to be exhausted by the time Sunday came around, so I, I packed my daughter's Easter basket up you know, on Saturday, and when I got home that night, I hid it in a perfect spot, and I thought, cool, I could sleep in until like nine or 10, and my mom will watch the baby, and then when I get up, she can find her Easter basket, and the festivities will begin. But that's not what happened. (laughs) What happened was, six o'clock in the morning, the sun comes streaming through my bedroom window right into my eye, because my mother refused to get blackout curtains even though I told her, if you don't, the sun will come streaming through the window right into my eye. And she said, I know. Uh, And so I, I sort of wake up and I hear my mother downstairs on the phone talking to my Aunt Kathy as she had done every day since my dad died a few years before, every day at the crack of dawn. And I know she was talking loud enough so that I would hear her, so that I would wake up, because her philosophy is, if she's up, everybody's up. But she was muted just enough so that I wouldn't be able to understand the shit talk that she was talking about me within earshot. And she loved to shit talk me within earshot. Like, I think she thinks that I'm a celebrity who is constantly refusing her an autograph. You know, oh, Carolyn, you know, she's been on TV five times for three minutes each time. Big deal, right? It's not like she's Mahanda Gandhi. (laughs) So, (laughs) 6.30, my daughter wakes up, and I'm like, oh, shit. Before I even have a chance to react, to decide, do I want to get up? What do I want to do? I hear my mother say, still on the phone, real cash, just in the middle of her conversation with my Aunt Kathy, she goes, oh, good morning, sweetheart. Why don't you come down and find your Easter basket? And something about my mother saying that 
when I was so tired and I had worked so hard that weekend and I had meticulously planned and planted the Easter basket. That was it. I was done. Like my whole soul just splatted out like boom on the belly of the universe and was like, no more, no more. You are over 21. You are in charge now, right? So I just sort of scream from the bottom of my gut with my head still on the pillow. What do you think you're doing? And I run downstairs, I blow past my daughter who's on the top of the steps, and I confront my mother, and she says to her sister, my aunt on the phone, "Uh uh-oh, I think Carolyn's mad at me, I gotta go. Right? And I could hear in her voice this really interesting thing, like she was kind of nervous that shit was gonna go down, but then also really excited, because that's the only way my mother knows how to feel alive. Right? Cause trouble or be in trouble, but no, no peace. So I say to her, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing telling my daughter that she can go find the Easter basket that I hid? Like, you don't even think that that's something that I might want to be involved in? You don't even think to think about whether or not you should think about me wanting to be involved in that. And she immediately retorted, but Carol, and, I, and I've heard that guttural joke so many times in my life, but Carol, and I, and I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I wasn't gonna let her tell me that I was wrong, that I was crazy, that I was too emotional. Oh, what are you saying? I'm a bad mother. I couldn't hear it one more time. So I ripped open the sliding glass door in the kitchen right next to her chair, and I ran out onto the deck, and I ran past her pool, and I'm running on the lawn, and it's wet because it's spring, and it's 6.30 in the morning, and I'm in like an old lady nightgown because I live with my fucking mother, right? And I'm running barefoot and I run all the way down and back. That's what we call the big field behind her house. Down and back and I run. I don't know what I, just, just tits and soul to the wind. Like, please God, give me some direction. A change needs to come. And I land in front of this giant weeping willow where we buried our dog, Dolly, who ran away during a lightning storm, allegedly because she was scared. I think she was just like, these people suck, I'm out. (laughs) And she got hit by a car, and so we buried her there under the weeping willow. And I stood there in front of the tree, racing still in my mind, in my soul, And it dawned on me suddenly that I had to forgive my mother because this was a cycle. And her parents had done this to her, and their parents had done that to them, and this had been going on in my family for generations, and I didn't want to feel compassion for any of these crazy people. I wanted somebody to feel compassion for me. But it turns out that my lot in life is to be the understanding one and the healer and to bury the family cross there under the tree with the dog. So I went back to the house and my mother had her half-hearted bullshit (coughs) apology all ready to go before I even got there and her stiff fucking cardboard hug. (laughs) And I said, "I, I don't want your hug, I don't want your apology. And we just went on with our day like nothing happened. And this year, on Easter Sunday, my mother told me that she was gonna start going to therapy. Uh, If that's what it takes, Carolyn. If that's what it takes. Because I just want us to get along. And I'll believe it when I see it, you know. I'm not holding my breath. The thing is, I, I realize, just on a once here, 
this Easter basket story, it's maybe nothing to you guys. And that's the difficult thing for people like me who grew up with borderline mothers. When you try to tell your story to somebody else, they don't get it. They're like, oh yeah, moms. My mom wouldn't let me get my ears pierced till I was 13. It's like, my mom pierced my ear with a nail as punishment. <laughs> you know, it's not the same kind of crazy. It's hard to understand. It's hard to accept that somebody could need to tell the truth about this. It's not getting hit. That's the worst part. It's not the big fights. It's not the blowouts. Your body is just a body. You can bruise it and it will heal. It's the emotional terrorism that gets to your soul. That's why your soul is inside your body, because it needs more protection. And so when you're in a room with this type of person, you know, it's like there's no air. And they're telling you, breathe. And then they keep taking out more air. And they're telling you, be grateful for the little bit of air that I'm leaving you. Tell me that you're grateful with your last breath. Tell me that you're grateful. And then you manage somehow to say, I'm grateful. And then they give you cake. Or they give you chocolate. A big, giant Easter basket full of chocolate. If only you can find it. Thanks. for this week's episode folks this is we are scientists behind me now and we just heard from carolyn castiglia listen there's a lot of live shows coming up as you already probably know in new york we have one coming up on may 22nd we have uh janine brito will be doing that show and in los angeles on that same night may 22nd we've got david keckner and jen kirkman Next up, we're in Washington, D.C. on uh, June 7th. That'll be a great show. Actually, two shows, an 8 o'clock show and a 10 o'clock show. Just be sure to go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out more about it. You can also see us on the 13th of June in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And we're still taking pitches for the Chapel Hill show. So, hey, send us your pitches, people in North Carolina. That is on, like I said, June 13th. And then on June 19th, we're back in New York and Los Angeles. And then on uh, July 4th, we are in London, England. And on July 22nd, we're in Chicago, Illinois. We're still taking pitches for London and Chicago as well. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and pitch us your story. Maybe you can get on one of those shows. Don't forget that we also teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. All sorts of corporate workshops, one-on-one training, either in person or over Skype. We have our online classes, and we also have our in-person classes. Two-day workshops, one-day workshops, six-week workshops. Check us out at thestorystudio.org. 
And finally, we are a Max Fun podcast. Don't forget, we're listener supported. We really need your help to keep all this going. So go to maximumfun.org/donate and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>